Right as you stand, if you'll open to the book of the Psalms, we are going to read today Psalm 103, all 22 verses. If you're using a Bible from the pew in front of you, you can find it on pages 342 and 343. Again, this morning's text is Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfies your mouth with good things, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord executes righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the children of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is the mercy toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. For he knows our frame, He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. As a flower of the field, so he flourishes. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone. And its place remembers it no more. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to such as keep his covenant, and to those who remember his commandments to do them. The Lord has established his throne in heaven, and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, you his angels, who excel in strength, who do his word, heeding the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all you his hosts, you ministers of his, who do his pleasure. Bless the Lord, all his works, in all places of his dominion. And if we didn't get it the first few times, bless the Lord, O my soul. Let's pray. Our great and heavenly Father, who is certainly worthy of this adoration. God, in this Christmas season, um, Lord, just inscribe the truth of your word in our hearts and your praises on our lips. We are just uh, forever thankful for your mercies in Christ's name. Amen. Give thanks. It's one of the most repeated exhortations in all the Bible. You find it repeated this way several times, such as in Psalm 136, to give thanks to the Lord. For he is good. His love endures forever. In recent years, scientific research has actually validated this particular ancient wisdom of giving thanks to the Lord. In fact, research studies have been done to test the effects of a thankful attitude. And the results show that the tremendous benefits of being a grateful person. The gratitude research actually shows that thankfulness has the strongest link to mental health and physical well-being of any of the 30 most commonly studied personality traits. Some of the gratitude research even goes beyond correlational research to show the gratitude actually has a causal effect on our well-being compared to other people. Listen to this. Grateful people are happier. They are less stressed. They are more social. They're more purposeful. They sleep better at night and have fewer health complaints. And so giving thanks to the Lord or praising the Lord really is good for the soul. Two weeks ago, we saw that here in Psalm 103, it is all about this, about David And he's talking to himself. He's talking to his soul. And he's urging himself to do something. And that is to give thanks, to bless the Lord, to praise the Lord by not forgetting all of his benefits or blessings. We actually see this pleading with the soul in the the first two verses of this psalm when, when David writes here, Bless the Lord, O my soul. And all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. 
And so David begins this psalm by prodding, by prompting and pleading with his soul to bless the Lord. And this phrase, bless the Lord, as we learned two weeks ago, it, it means speaking or singing about the goodness of God and even the greatness of God. And then David, in these next verses here, verses 2 through, through or 3 through 5, he then lists five benefits or five blessings of God in which we should always remember. And that is God forgives all my sins. He heals all my diseases. He, he redeems me from the pit of destruction. He crowns me with loving kindness and tender mercies. And he satisfies me with his goodness. And so David, in other words, begins this psalm by, by giving us some insight, by giving us the secret to being a grateful person. And that is to plead with your soul to Plead with yourself to praise the Lord by not doing something, by not forgetting all of his benefits or blessings. But that's just the problem, isn't it? We easily forget God's benefits or blessings. This is why we are so much better at complaining than we are praising. We forget what we should remember. Therefore, complaining is much easier than praising. Complaining is actually the accepted norm in our culture. I mean, it's not too hard to find things to complain about. Just listen to the conversations around you, and there's a lot of grumbling and complaining that's going on. And so complaining is actually what we default to. It's our natural, sinful, selfish instinct within us. Which means, if you want to take notes, you're welcome to pull that insert out of your bulletin and follow along on the screen here. We must continually do something in our lives as Christ followers. We must continually and we must intentionally plead with our soul to praise the Lord by remembering the greatness of God's mercy. Now, I want to ask the question that we asked two weeks ago. And that is, what marks your life more? Is it complaining or is it praising? According to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, one of the trademarks of the last days will be ungratefulness among unbelievers. But according to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18, Thankfulness, the Apostle Paul says, should be the trademark among Christ followers. Psalm 34.1, in other words, should be what defines our lives. It's what should be marking our lives, characteristic of who we are as Christ followers. When the psalmist writes, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. And for this reason, we must continually plead with our soul to praise the Lord by not forgetting God's blessings, but also by not forgetting God's great mercy. In the rest of the psalm here, David begins to shift. He begins to move from focusing on God's blessings that we saw two Sundays ago to focusing on God's great mercy or His steadfast love. He moves from what God has done for us to who God is and what God is like. In many ways, David is answering the question, who is God that we should praise Him? And the answer is God is more merciful than we can imagine. So in what ways then is God merciful? And there are two summary statements that describe God's mercy in the rest of this psalm. And the first statement is this. Our God is a covenant-keeping God. He's a covenant-keeping God. David begins to focus our attention on God's righteousness and justice when he writes in verse 6, notice what it says, the Lord executes righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. David here is telling us how God executes righteousness and justice for the oppressed when he then goes on and he writes in verse 7, He made known his ways to Moses, 
his acts to the children of Israel. And immediately that begs the question, well, what ways and what acts of God is David referring to here when he writes this? Well, David is actually referring to the time when Moses led the children of Israel out of bondage in Egypt. Now, if you're not familiar with that story in the Old Testament, let me give you just a cliff note version here. The children of Israel, sometimes called the Israelites, were slaves under Pharaoh. And God calls Moses to lead them out of Egypt to the promised land. Ten plagues later, Pharaoh finally relents and tells Moses, go, take these people and get out of here. But then Pharaoh quickly changes his mind and he pursues the children of Israel with his mighty army all the way to the Red Sea. And that's when God parts the Red Sea for the children of Israel to cross over on dry ground while Pharaoh and his army are wiped out as the water collapses onto them. Now, it's an amazing story of God rescuing his people from bondage. You would think these people would have been much more grateful and loyal to God. But then, get this, some three months later, when God is giving Moses the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, what are the children of Israel doing back at base camp? Well, instead of worshiping the true God who had just rescued them from bondage and slavery in Egypt, they're now worshiping a false God that they had made in the image of a golden calf. As you might imagine, God's holy anger burns against these people, so much so that in His righteous justice, God is going to wipe them out and start over with Moses. But Moses, he pleads with God. He intercedes on behalf of these children. And God, in His mercy, forgives them and renews His covenant promises to them. And this is why now David writes here in verse 8 this phrase, the Lord is merciful and gracious. That is a beautiful phrase and it is a picture of God's mercy, in fact, that we have here in Exodus 34, 5 through 7. In fact, David is using the very words that God used to describe himself to Moses in Exodus 34. Notice what it says. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there. And he proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And so what we have here in mercy, in great mercy, God renews his covenant with his people. And what, by the way, is his covenant? Well, basically, it is that God will save his people and he will be their God and they will worship him as his people. God made this covenant with Abraham, and he renews it with Moses, and then again with David. And the good news is, God extends this particular covenant to all peoples, but he does it through the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's called the new covenant. In fact, we get glimpses of this new covenant and what it will be about in Jeremiah where he talks about this new covenant in chapter 31. Listen to what he writes. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke Though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. This new covenant is now made with all peoples across the world through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. In the Old Covenant, the law was written on tablets of stone. 
But in the new covenant, the law is written on people's hearts. In the old covenant, you can only know God through a priest. But in the new covenant, you can know God personally through Jesus Christ. In the old covenant, God was merciful. And yes, He was forgiving. But you were reminded of your sin once a year when you came to offer a sacrifice for your sins. But in the new covenant, forgiveness of sins is granted. And God remembers our sin no more. In other words, He doesn't hold it over us any longer. So who is God that we should praise Him? Listen, the first thing David focuses our attention on, he cries out to us and he says, listen, don't underestimate this. Our God is merciful. Why? Because He is a covenant-keeping God. Therefore, cry out in praise to Him. Don't let your soul forget this aspect of God, of who He is. But number two, we also learn in this psalm that our God is a compassion-giving God. He's a compassion-giving God. Listen, if you're in a place of your life right now where you need to replace a complaining spirit with a heart of gratitude, then let your heart be filled with the truth that our God is merciful as a compassion-giving God. That's exactly what David provides for us here in verses 8 through 18. I wonder how many of us really believe that God is merciful and compassion-giving, though. I mean, how do we know that this is who God really is? Because David tells us that there are three ways in which we experience God's compassion. And the first of which is we experience God's compassion in the degree of his mercy. God's response to us is one of mercy. Look what David writes in verses 8 through 9. He says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in mercy. Sometimes that's word mercy that we're using is translated as steadfast love. The two are somewhat interchangeable. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. Now, have you ever known anyone who was just looking for reasons to be angry? You know, they, they were already offended. They're already so mad that before they saw you, they were looking for reasons to be angry with you. I've known people like that. But do you know what David is saying here? He is saying that although God, listen, has good reason to deal with you that way, he doesn't. In fact, get this. Rather than looking for reasons to be angry with you, God has reasons to be merciful to you. David says God is actually reluctant in his anger. A few years back, there were two brothers, ages 10 and 6, who, like most brothers, soon were arguing and fighting. And so Tyler hit Jack, and tears and bitter words followed. By the way, if you're wondering, that's my two sons. Accusations were still being exchanged as their mother prepared them for bed with the instruction, Now, Jack, before you go to bed, you're going to have to forgive your brother Tyler. Jack thought for a moment, then replied, Well, okay, I'll forgive Tyler tonight, but he better look out in the morning. (laughs) Listen, God doesn't hold grudges. Instead, he's reluctant in his anger. But get this, David actually goes beyond that. David goes on to say that God is also generous in his mercy or steadfast love toward us. According to verse 10, God is overflowing in His mercy when David writes, He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. Reminds me of the woman who made an appointment with a photographer. And she insisted, I don't know why, that his portrait of her do her justice. Well, the photographer studied the subject for a few moments and said, Ma'am, may I suggest to you that what you need is not justice, but mercy. (laughs) And folks, that's what we all need here this morning. We need God's mercy. 
So let me ask you a question. What would happen if your sins, all of them, the most embarrassing of them, the ones you have worked hard to make sure very few people as possible even know about, what would happen if your sins were revealed today, right now? Maybe to your spouse, to your parents, to your children, co-worker. As bad as it would be, and that would be pretty bad, here's the thing, it still wouldn't be all that you deserve. The story is told that Arthur Conan Doyle sent a telegram just as a joke to a group of close friends and associates that simply read this, flee at once, all is discovered. You know what happened? Many of them left the country out of guilt of what they had done in their lives. But what would happen if your sins were all of a sudden discovered? And although God knows all of our sins, here's the point. God doesn't give you what you deserve. He doesn't deal with us that way. Why? Because God is generous in His mercy. God is overflowing in the way that He shows mercy to us when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So the first way we experience God's compassion is in the degree of His mercy toward us. The second way we experience God's compassion is actually in the dimension of His mercy. Look what David writes here in verses 11 through 14. He says, For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is His mercy toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. And what we see here in these verses is David is now using these word pictures. In fact, he uses three of them to illustrate the dimension or the measurement of God's mercy toward us. These analogies or these word pictures help us to better stand just how great God's mercy is on behalf of our lives. The first word picture describes the, the magnitude of God's mercy here in verse 11. Look at it again. When David writes, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is the mercy towards those who fear Him. So how high are the heavens above the earth? You ever wondered that? Well, light travels 186,000 miles per second. So a light year is about 6 trillion miles. Astronomers tell us the closest known star to the Earth is 4.2 light years. So the closest star is a little more than 25 trillion miles away. Now, most of the stars you see in the sky are much further than that. In fact, most stars are 2,000 light years away. The average speed of a jet plane is about 550 miles per hour. That means it takes roughly 5.5 hours to fly across the United States. It takes two days to fly around the world. It would take three weeks to fly to the moon, and to fly to the nearest star would take 52 million years. What does all this mean? simply means the magnitude of God's mercy is beyond comparison. The closest comparison we have is the height of the heavens, which means you will never reach the end of God's mercy just as you will never reach the end of heaven. The second word picture or analogy describes the breath of God's mercy to us in verse 12, where David writes, For as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Have you ever been so hurt in life that you just would not forgive that person who hurt you? And the hurt just keeps coming up. And in every conflict, that old offense gets thrown out as the trump card. Yeah, well, you remember that time you did. David is saying that Though God's memory is perfect, He never does that to you. 
God doesn't pull out the trump card of your offenses. Why? Because in His mercy, God has removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. And notice David doesn't say as far as the north is from the south. That's rather interesting. Why is that? Well, because if I go north, eventually I will reach what? The North Pole. And then I begin to go south if I continue traveling. But if I go east, I will never reach west no matter how far I travel east. This is David's way of saying that God's forgiveness of our sins through the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross is final and complete. Does this mean that God forgives and, quote, forgets our sins? No. In heaven, Jesus is the Lamb upon the throne. And the Lamb was slain on the cross for our sins. And so God's mercy, listen to me, does not overlook sin. It deals with our sin decisively. The cross of Jesus Christ will be remembered in heaven because it is on that cross that our sin was paid for once and for all. And it is by that cross that God reconciles us to Himself. That's the promise of the new covenant that God keeps with us through our faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. The third analogy or the third word picture that David uses describes the tenderness of of God's mercy here in verse 13. Look at it again. David writes, as a father pities his children. In other words, as a father shows compassion for his children. So the Lord pities or shows compassion to those who fear Him. Most fathers will do anything for their kids. And to think of one of your kids being hurt, it just tears you up inside. It crushes you. Your heart breaks. When you know your children are breaking and they're going through difficulties, earthly fathers, however imperfect they may be, point us upward to our heavenly father. But even if your earthly father was compassionate to you, it's still only a shadow, only a glimpse of the compassion of your heavenly father. And so we can step back here and we can praise the Lord because our God is a compassion-giving God. He loves us as high as the heavens. He forgives us as far as the east is from the west. And He shows compassion to us like a father who loves his children. And then David summarizes it all. He says this about God in verse 14. For He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Do you sometimes feel as if no one knows you? That no one really knows your hopes and fears and dreams? That no one understands you? No one listens to you? No one cares about you? Listen, here's what David is saying. God does. God is your heavenly Father. He knit you together in your mother's womb. He knows your frame. He knows everything about you. The good, the bad, and the ugly. He knows your deepest fears. He knows your desperate hopes. And He remembers that you are dust. But He shows His compassion on you anyway. Why? Because of His great mercy or steadfast. But God's compassion is great, not just in the degree and the dimension of His mercy. We also experience this mercy of God in the duration of His mercy. Notice how David contrasts the duration of our lives with the duration of God's mercy when he writes in verses 15 through 18, As for man, his days are like grass. That pretty much sums it up. As a flower of the field, so he flourishes. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place remembers it no more. And then here's the turning point. Verse 17. 
But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him and His righteousness to children's children, to such as keep His covenant and to those who remember His commandments to do them. These verses, folks, listen to me, have both good news and bad news for everyone here today. The bad news is twofold. First, everyone is going to die someday. Do you realize that? And when you die, it's going to come quicker than we would like because in the grand scheme of things, life is short. Our days are like grass, David says. And second, after you die, this world is going to forget you. Regardless of how many Twitter followers you have and Instagram followers, it doesn't matter. This world is going to forget you. And even your own family will forget you in due time. Why? Because as David says, as a flower of the field, so we flourish. But the wind passes over you and it is gone. And its place remembers it no more. Now, there is absolutely nothing we can do about our humanity. In other words, about our mortality in this life. And try as we might, we cannot change our mentality. Listen to me, diet and exercise, as good as it is, it may slow down the process, but the end is the same for all of us. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. But Psalm 103 here, let me tell you, it offers us hope that lifts us up above the transitory nature of this life. It is the blessed but of verse 17 that changes everything. This one word in verse 17 where it says, but here is a stark contrast between our mortality and God's eternity. This word but signals the good news about God's mercy. And you say, what is that good news? Listen, here it is. Our days are short and our lives are forgotten, but God's mercy is from everlasting to everlasting. God's mercy is not limited by time. God is eternal, and so is His compassion and mercy. It stretches over time from one generation to the next. So what is this psalm telling us? What should we walk out of here and leave with? What truth should we grip onto and hold onto? David is reminding us that we are more blessed than we realize. We are eternally rich in the mercy of God. A little boy, he came to the Washington Monument and he noticed a guard standing by it. The little boy looked up at the guard and said, I want to buy that. The guard stooped down. Well, how much do you have? The boy reached into his pocket and pulled out a quarter. And the guard said, oh, that's not enough. The boy replied, I thought you would say that. So he pulled out nine cents more. And the guard looked down at the boy. You need to understand three things, son. First, 34 cents is not enough. In fact, 34 million is not enough to buy the Washington Monument. The second thing you need to realize is the Washington Monument is not for sale. And the third, if you are an American citizen, the Washington Monument already belongs to you. And in the same way, we need to understand three things about God's mercy here. First, we cannot earn the mercy of God. You cannot be a good enough person. You cannot do a good, enough good things to earn God's mercy on your behalf. Second, the mercy of God is not for sale. And third, if we know Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord, you already have it. You are rich in the mercy of God. And when you have experienced God's mercy, you can't help but do what? To praise the Lord. In fact, like David, it will move you from complaining to praising. And if you're here this morning and you are not praising, that means one thing. You have forgotten the greatness of God's mercy or you have yet to experience the greatness of God's mercy. 
Because when you remember or when you experience just a little bit of God's mercy, let me tell you, praising will mark and define your life. But the pleading of our soul to praise God, it doesn't just stop with us. We want more than that. We want the whole universe to praise God. We want the whole universe to join in with us in praising our God. Notice this, a universal plea here. Remembering the greatness of God, it compels you to call all creation to join you in praising God. Here's the deal. When you have experienced the mercy of God and you have seen the greatness of God and the goodness of God, and you know that there is only one God who rules over the world, it moves you, it compels you to say with David here in verses 19 through 22, look what it says. The Lord has established his throne in heaven, and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, you his angels who excel in strength, who do his word, heeding the voice of the word. Bless the Lord, all you his hosts, you ministers of his, who do his pleasure. Bless the Lord, all his works, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. So here's David's concluding point. It's not enough for everything within us to praise the Lord. We want, and we should be compelled and motivated towards this, we want everything in the universe to praise the Lord with us. In other words, you're not satisfied with the thought that only you and the redeemed should praise God. God's mercy is so great that nothing but praise of all of creation will do. So remembering God's mercy, it moves us from pleading with our own souls to praise the Lord to calling on others, to calling all creation to praise the Lord with us. Now, as we come to the end of this psalm, and as we prepare our own hearts to participate in communion, there are two questions I'd like for us to consider. The first question is this. Is there any real praise in your heart toward God? Right now. Do you need to move from complaining to praising? Roy Clements says it this way. We need to ask ourselves whether or not there is any real praise in our hearts. It is so easy to come to church out of habit. It is so easy to repeat amen without ever really speaking to God. It is so easy to hear sermons without ever really listening to God. Spiritual lukewarmness, he says, is a common disease. If that is our condition, then we, like David, need to talk to ourselves. We need to stir our hearts up to a more appropriate emotional response to the truth about the God we know. And if you find your heart cold, he writes, then do what David did and count your blessings. So do you need to move from complaining to praising? Is there any real praise in your heart toward God? The second question is this. Do you have any real share in these blessings of God? Have you experienced, in other words, the mercy of God? At first glance at this psalm, it might seem that David is speaking of blessings from God that are enjoyed by everybody. After all, he's calling on all creation to praise God. But that is not so. Not everyone will experience these blessings and mercy of God. The blessings David is speaking of are, according to verse 17, in fact, it's actually repeated two other times in previous verses here, are for those who do what? Fear God or trust God. Those are the ones who experience the blessings of God. Those are the ones who experience the mercy of God of God in their lives. And David wants us to ask ourselves, have I experienced that? Have I experienced 
God's forgiveness for my sins? Has God redeemed my life from destruction through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ? Have I personally experienced God's mercy through His Son in what He did on the cross in His resurrection? Listen, the starting place where you will discover God's abundant mercy and forgiveness of sin is at the cross of Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us in Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrated His own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, what did God do for us? Christ died for us. And so God cannot be more merciful to you than that. What you need to do is simply put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You need to repent of your sin and confess it to God and ask Him to save you and put your faith in what He did for you on the cross and then you will begin to know the blessings and mercy of God Almighty. But even when we experience the blessings of God, we still have this tendency to do what? It takes us all the way back to the beginning of the psalm. We have a tendency to forget. To forget those blessings. Which is why we need to plead. We need to beg and prompt our souls to remember. In fact, we need to meditate on God's mercy. And that's why we are coming to the Lord's table. As you come this morning to take the bread and the juice, symbols of His grace... Meditate on this aspect. I don't know about you, but sometimes when I come to the Lord's table, I come with my heart and it is somewhat empty and cold towards the things of God. And it's not because God is not merciful. And it's not because God hasn't been merciful to me. But it's because I have forgotten how merciful God is and specifically how He has manifested His mercy to me on the cross. And so as we come here in a few moments to the Lord's table, let me encourage you to ponder, to think upon, to meditate on God's mercy that is shown to you in Jesus Christ. As you eat the bread, remember God's mercy in the broken body of Jesus on the cross. And as you drink the juice, remember God's mercy in the shed blood of Jesus for you on the cross. And then let your heart by the power of the Spirit and the truth of His Word here, let your heart be filled with gratitude and let your mouth be filled with praise. In fact, when you take the bread and juice back to your pew and you eat and drink it, either before or after, you might even want to declare in prayer a praise to God of thanks. In your own words, whether you prayed in your mind or you're softly right there expressing it, from your heart. Will you bow your heads with me? And let's pray and give thanks for God's great mercy. In a preparation for the Lord's Supper, I would also want to say that if you have confessed, if you're one who is here this morning and you have confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord, that is by trusting Him for your salvation and identifying with Him in baptism and then committing to His body and membership of a local church then we invite you to participate in communion. As a Christ follower, if you have unconfessed sin in your life, then let me encourage you to come to the cross in humble repentance and ask God to forgive you and cleanse you. And then come to His table with a clean heart. If you're not yet a Christ follower, that is, you have yet to confess Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, then I invite you to watch what we do as a church body here. And when you watch, I pray you will see a picture of God's mercy as the church eats and drinks of these symbols of grace. Or maybe you are a Christ follower, but you know within your heart you are not ready, you are not prepared to participate in communion. Then stay seated and watch and reflect on the mercy of God towards you. And pray out. Run to the cross and cry for forgiveness and that God would cleanse you all over again. Lord, we thank you so, so much for your great mercy. We cannot express that enough. And Lord, I know for myself there are times when 
there's just a spirit of complaining within me and I need to be reminded of these truths. And by your grace, I need to move from complaining to praising you. And so, Lord, let that be true of me. Let that be true of all of us here this morning through the sacrifice of your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you so, so much in your son's name. Amen. The music's going to begin to play, and at your convenience, you're welcome to feel free and stand and walk toward one of the four tables throughout the auditorium to participate in communion. And again, you may take the bread and cut back to your seat to eat and drink and, and then offer a prayer of thanks for God's mercy. Why don't you sing with us while the ushers come and take their offering?
Thank you so much for being here. Have a wonderful, wonderful week.